Welcome back to the conversation. It was 30 years ago today that history was made on the Hawaiian island of Kaho'olawe. That is when the bombing stopped. Here's what led up to that. The day after Pearl Harbor was bombed in 1941, the U.S. military used Kaho'olawe for target practice, live fire military exercises, ship-to-shore shelling, amphibious landings, gunnery practice, torpedo blasting, and bombing. Fast forward to January 1976, Native Hawaiians staged an occupation of Kaho'olawe to draw national attention to their call for Congress to grant reparations for the role of the U.S. in the overthrow of the Hawaiian monarchy. Nine persons landed on the island. They were arrested and released. This was the start of an island's wide grassroots movement to stop the bombing of Kaho'olawe, reclaiming its standing as a sacred Hawaiian island. The PKO, Protect Kaho'olawe Ohana, was born. On October 22, 1990, President George Bush issued a memorandum to the Secretary of Defense to immediately discontinue use of Kaho'olawe as a weapons range. We have a series of audio tapes to play for you today from the UH Manoa Center for Oral History. Joining us this morning is Derek Kekaulike Marr, who serves as Native Hawaiian Cultural Advisor, providing cultural training for Dawson and the Hawaiian Native Corporation. Dawson is a Native Hawaiian-owned business headquartered in Honolulu with offices across the U.S. and operations worldwide. The Dawson companies are subsidiaries of the Hawaiian Native Corporation. They're also underwriters of HPR. Derek, mahalo for being able to uh, share your mana'o with us. Yay, aloha, Catherine. Thanks for having me on. I have to chuckle because, you know, I didn't realize your connection with Dawson when we talked initially, and you shared with me that because of your work there on Kaho'olawe, uh, you were introduced to <laughs> Hawaii Public Radio. Yeah, that's that's right. Actually, uh, Kaho'olawe is uh, the center point of a lot of things in my life, um, you know, uh, Back when I was working out there, one of the only signals we could get in our in our beat up Ford F one fifties was from KKUA, right, uh, ninety point seven Maui, and um, and that's how I started listening to HPR. Okay. Uh, the only thing I could listen to out there. Uh, it's also where I met the uh, founders of the company that I work for currently. Well, we certainly appreciate uh, you being with us today. And here to help us guide through some of the voices put together by the Center for Oral History is HPR's News Director, Bill Dorman. Catherine, we have half a dozen brief interviews to share today, just part of that much wider collection they have at the Center for Oral History. They help to tell the story of the evolution of a movement, one that sparked a renaissance of Hawaiian culture in the 1970s and after. It also had some tragic elements, including the deaths of two of its leaders, George Helm and Kimo Mitchell. Our voices this morning begin with Dr. Noah Emmett Aluli. He was among the first nine protesters who landed on Kohoholave in 1976. At that time, he was in the first class of students at the University of Hawaii John A. Burns School of Medicine. Imagine that. Today, he's a physician in family practice on Molokai. Dr. Luli has led the Protect Kahoalave Ohana that has spearheaded the movement throughout the past 44 years. When I was um, on Molokai as a fourth-year medical student, was uh, meeting up with Life of the Land, who had just stopped the sand mining at Papahaku Beach. And then came the development and, and um, Adolph and Walter and, and uh, other folks established a, a group called the Group of the Long Trails, Hui Alaloa, 
which is the kind of like the trails around every island. And that was an effort to kind of like uh, continue to be able to walk the trails, uh, even though it went around a hotel and, and be able to fish and gather. It was a pretty big uh, protest. Um, we got involved there, but I was Mitch Maxwell, who was a policeman on Molokai then, because of the notoriety of the probably first Native Hawaiian rights kind of like march from Hui Alaloa for access to that maybe the the group would come over and join the fishermen who kind of like were you know, needing to expand their f fishing resource and couldn't really kind of they had a sneak to call obviously so it was a fishing kind of fisherman's protest and it was also a hunting because there's a lot of Goats on coal, So we land and we set up and, and um, talking story and, and um, comes the Coast Guard warning us that they're going to, the marshals will land and they would arrest us. Meanwhile, myself and Walter just kind of like, um, just went out of sight. We didn't want to get picked up. We just wanted to make it worth our while and not just for show. We kind of like, Watch the seven guys get picked up and taken back on the Coast Guard boat. And then we just started exploring slippers, shorts, um, t-shirt, uh, some water. The military was there the next day, handcuffed us, took us into their helicopter, and dropped us off at uh, Kahului Harbor, I mean, airport, and let us go and uh, gave us um, warning and bar letters, which we just tore up, saying that we should not, couldn't go back to the island. That was a punishment. George and I had been doing some research on uh, Navahi's work because his sister had Emma Navahi's diary, handwritten diary. George and I looked at it, but uh, the research we did was, was um, what they were trying to do with what they called Aloha Aina. They're the ones that uh, started uh, that whole movement. So my thing to George, what do we tell the press that we just did? He said, let's go Aloha Aina. And so that became our slogan, Aloha Aina, love the land. Uh, and to be able to figure out in modern terms what that meant. And when we go back, uh, take care of the land, the land takes care of you. Life of the land is perpetuated in the righteousness. So Aloha Aina was, was the reason why we went to Koholame and not just stop the bombing. And all this kind of like coming back to culture because of the rights uh, were being swept away was something that we were learning uh, ever since Hui Aloha and articulating it. Dr. Noah Emmett Aluli really laying the groundwork and the context for some of that, one of the first protesters landing on Kohoa Lave in 1976. As he mentioned, that element of uh, the U.S. military using the island for target practice, but really something much broader as well. And Derek, you know, just listening to Emmett and, and thinking about that history, you know, what are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, Emmett's just the... Um just a source of so much um, knowledge and experience. You know, he, um, 
I'm, I'm sure the, the university system has, you know, um, you know, a whole uh, server dedicated to, to his oral history. And he's got so many things. And, you know, at his house, there's the pictures to back it up. You know, I don't know if people know this, but, you know, he's a pretty avid uh, photographer. And he's just got boxes and boxes of, of, of pictures throughout the years. But when I, and when I hear Emmett, you know, I, I think of courage and I think of commitment. Right. So he was a fourth year medical student, um, a lot writing, uh, the first class at, uh, at you know, the Johnny School, uh, Johnny Burns uh, School of Medicine. And, you know, we, all of that could have been taken away from him, yanked away from him for, you know, federal trespassing, right, or whatever they wanted to, to call it at the time. But just just to have that commitment to, to go and to, to have a uh, Aloha Aina, to see what Koholawe was all about, and without anyone knowing at the time how, how important um, that first trip would be and, you know, the experiences that he and Walter had at the time is just phenomenal. Yes, so, Walter um, Riddy. Long, yes, yeah, Walter Riddy. You know, uh, f- uh, fighting the fight early on, and I remember, uh, I think, interviewing Emmett Aluli, uh, gosh, almost like 40 years ago when he had a, when his hair was black. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly a, a incredible role model and someone that uh, we look to uh, in those early days. Anything else you think would be important to underscore? Yeah, you know, Emmett had actually mentioned a, a few people um, in his oral history. He, he mentioned, um, you know, Navahi, right? Uh, Joseph Navahi was a fantastic statesman um, back in the, the late 1800s. Now that he was actually elected president of the Hui Aloha Aina, or the Hawaiian Patriot League, which um, fought to, you know, restore the monarchy, right? And, um, you know, and his his wife's journal um, and, and the work that they were doing was all about political activism, um, being a leader in the community, um, putting out articles um, in the Hawaiian newspaper at the time. So, you know, Emmett mentioning, I mean, we think of Emmett as such a I- iconic leader of uh, Aloha Aina and of the Hawaiian community, but Emmett himself, you know, is mentioning Nabahi, other people like um, Adolf Helm, um, Walter Riddy, and I think in his um, in his interview he also said Maxwell, right, was a police officer on Maui, and I think he's referring to you know Charlie Maxwell. We're back now with more on the story of Kaho'olawe. It was nearly 45 years ago that Native Hawaiians staged an occupation of the island. It was a protest against the military's use of Kaho'olawe for target practice, but it was also more. Demonstrators also called for Congress to grant reparations for the role of the U.S. in the overthrow of the Hawaiian monarchy. We have another set of voices uh, from the UH Manoa Center for Oral History. On that first day of protest in 1976, nine people landed on the island. They were arrested and released. Bill Dorman is back to tell us more about the start of the uh, islands-wide grassroots movement to stop the bombing of Kaho'olawe. And Catherine, it was through the efforts of the Protect Kaho'olawe Ohana that the island reclaimed its standing. Ian Lind, a familiar name and voice, he was part of that early group of activists. He became an investigative reporter for first the Honolulu Star Bulletin. He's done commentaries here at HPR and now does pieces for Civil Beat as well. The night before, we were at a community center where we were camping, basically camping till the next morning. We were supposed to go out early. And um, people were flying in from all over. 
I didn't know many people and I kind of wandered around listening. <clears throat> it was very clear that, you know, we were there to have this demonstration on Kaho'olawe, but everyone was there for their own reasons. They all came from communities that had their own community struggles, their own issues. The island politics were different, the communities were different. Um, everybody had the beef with Hawaiian homes, and there was a lot of discussion about what to do about that, and who to get out, and who to get in, and what could be done. And employment, health, everybody had different, different handles on issues. Those were really the propelling issues, all the community issues, and Kaho'olawe just became like, um, I think Maxwell had it right. This is the way to start the bicentennial, right? The, bi the American bicentennial is here in 1976, and we're all being bypassed, and we have all these issues um, that kind of are symbolized by bombing and destroying an entire island. So, you know, you got this. It I don't think anyone there thought that Kaho'olawe was, was going to just explode into a, a statewide thing, but somehow it did, right? But, that, but I don't think that was what was propelling people, whether it was, you know, the trail access on Molokai and, you know, I mean, just all these local issues that all, everybody was burning with what's going on in, in the local issues and somehow put that energy into making this happen. They did this thing on, you know, trying to criticize and critique the military's position that Kaho'olawe was absolutely essential and if you didn't have Kaho'olawe you'd have to close down Pearl Harbor and all that. This was the um, part of their pitch, you know. This is, it's all about money. In, in one correspondence, they, one of the um, insiders said, explaining to the businessmen, or explaining to the Navy what the pitch they had to make to the businessmen, You've got to explain. They got to feel it in the left hip pocket. You know, you got to. They got to understand what Kaho'olawe means to their wallets. So I, stuff like that. I was trying to address that and pitch it to people who might be, you know, might not see other issues as being so important, but might be upset if the Navy's lying about what they really needed. And we'd actually found then data showing the use of Kaho'olawe had been going down, down, down over several years. Um, even though they kept saying it was more and more and more and more important, it really wasn't. They were already phasing out much of its use. In that year where they started the bicentennial, that was investigative reporter Ian Lynn with a bit more context there. He was part of that early group of Kaho'olawe protesters, as you heard. Another person active in early protests, Joyce Kainoa who was born in 1946 in Hana on Maui, of course. She raised her family on the backside of Molokai, living on the land, farming, fishing, and hunting. She was particularly well-known for her fishing skills. George Helm was the protest group's leader at the time. He invited her on the fourth illegal landing to Kohoalave when it was still being bombed. In November 2004, seven months after the Navy finally departed from the island, the Kohoalave Island Reserve Commission and Protect Kohoalave Ohana invited the early activists back to the island, and evenings were spent, as you might imagine, sharing stories of their landings. Here's Joyce Kainoa's story. She passed away in 2015. I'm a member of Hui Alaloa. From Hui Alaloa, we wear another hat, became PKO. My cousin Harry Mitchell ended up uh, 
coming to my house. Uh, I lived in Mapuleu, and he came in the middle of the night and came to see me and told me that he had a dream that we're supposed to come to Kaho'olawe and to protect those that our ancestors built. That's the temples. There's all the fishing cores. My family is all fishermen. Now, I'm supposed to go on my own, on my own boat. George changed the plan. He tells me, no, I don't like you go on your own boat. We're going to switch. We start going out towards Kanapo. We jump. These brothers all were starting to jump in the water. Boat turn on, going out. So this bay, which I didn't know, turned out to be Kamohio. Way later, they tell us it's impossible to climb this cliff. <laughs> well, we got up that mountain, you know how? I remember because I fish. A lot of times, the ancestors of before, the Lawaiya, they get makamakai. You step on the cliff, some of them, they get trails, alahele. All the shells. If you ever see opihi shell, pupu shell, all white on top, the kupunas carry, make trail. Nighttime white, torches. You can see them. You can see the trail. Full moon, you can see the trail. We did get on top of the mountain. We right smack in the target zone. So we're in the wrong place because they're gonna stop the bombing again. So, you know, I mean, I can laugh now. I wasn't laughing then. You walk into the valley of death. Yeah, all you can do is put your life in Akua's hands. And we asked to walk the path for us and went straight up across. We took all night to go across. When you fly, do you know the helicopter fly over us thinking we are rocks? You know, sometimes being afraid is good for you. You become humble. Nobody knows us. We was on Kahoa Love you, until George gonna let out the names. We got arrested. They flew us to here. Smuggler's Cove, which is Honokanaya. Now, I'm charged for conspiracy to overthrow the United States government. There's some of us, when we left Kahoa Love our lives changed a little. We took different paths. We had different missions to accomplish. I moved to Pelikunu. I still practice Aloha Aina today. This island has touched many people. You know, and so when you do something, you do it from the na'au. That's the way it is, but also pulling. So this island can heal us and sometimes can do us in. When we on this Aina over here, you know, it all, we're all connected. We're all connected. This island is whole. Powerful, powerful voice, Joyce Kainala. Trailblazer, certainly, on so many levels. They were talking in 2004 about her memories from the early days of the protests on Kohoalave and her illegal landing there with some others. The island is still being bombed. You know, if you're just joining us, we're also here with Derek Kekaliki-Mar. He serves as a Native Hawaiian cultural advisor for Dawson Companies. Uh, and, and Derek, you know, you're also a PKO member. Yeah, that's, that's right, Catherine. I've been with the PKO since uh, 1995. I actually remember uh, sitting on the beach at Honokonai, uh listening to uh, Joyce um, talk about her experiences there. Wow. And she, she nailed it right on the head. You know, Koholave has, has changed lives, and, and everyone takes a little different path, and, you know, and everyone practices Alohaina uh, differently. And I, I think, too, you know, Ian Lin and, and, and his commentary and, and what he's done uh, since, um, you know, since the time uh, of his landing with the nine, right? Uh, he let us, you know, in his, 
TikTok story, he was saying, follow the money. It's always about the money. And how many stories has, has Ian done, uh, you know, through his career as an investigative journalist, uh, just following the money and, um, and finding out, you know, the truth behind the story. So, uh, you know, Ian follows and practices Aloha Aina uh, through his profession and his way. Uh, you know, Joyce and her family still actually um, continues to practice uh, Aloha Aina, um, you know, living in Pelekunu, living off the land. Um, just a, a, a beautiful lady. Uh, I was so lucky and privileged to be able to, to sit there, listen to her stories. And that whole weekend was, you know, my chicken skin had chicken skin listening to, to all of their mo'olelo. And your father was there on that island too, wasn't he? Did yeah, he... My, my, my dad is, has come over, uh, you know, a, a few times. Um, he, um, he, he would come over and, and, and do some projects with us. Um, you know, my, my dad is, uh, is a commercial painter here on, uh, on Oahu, and, you know, whenever there's a, a big painting project, he's, he's the first one to volunteer, right? Oh, I'll, I'll take care of that, but no worries, right? Um, yeah, and my family's been lucky enough to come out to Kaulave on several instances. And it was your work with PKO. You were uh, introduced to the Dawson uh, uh, companies, which is helping in the cleanup and the restoration, uh, which eventually landed you a job there. Yeah, so my volunteer efforts with the PKO uh, eventually led to a position, a paid position at um, at the Koalabe Island Reserve Commission, um, and I, I did a lot of uh, you know forest restoration work there. So we planted on average a thousand to two thousand trees uh, every week, um, and we would we would just have a, a continuous stream of volunteers that would come up to, to help us plant these thousand to two thousand trees a week. Um, and on one of those trips uh, was the, the Dawson family came out, actually. Uh, Chris Dawson, Beatty Dawson, uh, Donnie Dawson, and, and uh, you know, other members of their family came out. And we had a really good uh, uh, trip. We, we, we accomplished our, our mission in planting our 1,000 or 2,000 trees out there. And, um, and that's where I got to meet Chris. And at the time, he was just starting up uh, this, this Dawson um, uh, companies, um, and you know, when I eventually had had left Kaho'olawe, Chris called me up and said, "Hey, I'm doing this thing, and I want you to come, you know, uh, help us out." And and that's how I got involved uh, with Dawson. And funny enough, you know, full circle, some ten years later, um, Dawson had a, a acquired a company that that um, or a part of the company that manages the base camp on Kaho'olawe. All right. And well, so now that base camp contract is something that we perform. We're back now with more on the story of Kaho'olawe. It was nearly 45 years ago that Native Hawaiians staged an occupation of the island. It was a protest against the military's use of Kaho'olawe for target practice. Today we're marking the 30th anniversary of the end of the bombing of that island. And we've been bringing you voices from interviews from the UH Manoa Center for Oral History. Uh, HBR's news director Bill Dorman is back to tell us more. Yes, Catherine, you know, there is a political twist in this story that many people may not know about, and it involves local Republican politician Pat Psyche, born and raised in Hilo, by the way. She served in the U.S. Congress for two terms, from 1986 to 1990, and when Senator Spark Matsunaga passed away in 1990, President George H.W. Bush asked her to run for that Senate seat. Now, she agreed to do that if he would take one action— stop the bombing at Koholave. 
she picks up the story herself. Telephone rang. It was the President of the United States, George H.W. Bush, who invited me to the Oval Office. I have something to discuss with you, he says. He sat me down and said, this is the time for you to run for the United States Senate because there is an opening. Too bad Sparky had to go. But uh, you're the only Republican that I can think of that I can trust to take that seat and do a good job of it. I said, Mr. President, you know, it's easy for you to encourage me, but it's, it's a difficult race to win. This is a Democrat state. It's a very, very blue state. I'm going to need a lot of help. Then, he said, certainly I'm going to give you a hand. Whatever I can do, I will help you. Well, Mr. President, there is something you can do. He says, what is it? I said, there is a festering problem we have with the United States government, and that is this incessant bombing of this little island called Kaho'olawe. He says, Kaho'o what? Ka you haven't heard of Kaho'olawe? The RIMPAC exercises are held there, and it was ordered by Dwight D. Eisenhower a long time ago by executive order to use it, that island, for their exercises, to sharpen their horns and and I said, so it's, it's a travesty and a violation of a whole culture that's going on. The Hawaiian culture believes in Kaho'olawe as sacred territory. Besides that, the bombing is affecting the windows, the rattling windows on the next island of Maui. And by the way, it affects Ka'anapali Golf Course. Now, George H.W. Bush is an avid golfer, you know that. He says, Kahanapali. I said, right, absolutely. It's right there on the coast. And these islands, one, one of these days, an errant bomb is going to land on Maui, and we're going to really have a crisis. So I said, you have to do everything you can to stop it. Now, I said, I don't know. The Democrats have tried for years and years and years to stop the bombing of Kahanapali, but I don't know if they've done their homework, because I did. Dwight D. Eisenhower, by executive order, allowed for the bombing. You, as president, can issue an executive order canceling that one and restore the island to the Hawaiian people. He turned around and he told John Sununu, do it. John Sununu, the uh, chief of staff, what a remarkable slice of Oval Office history that is. Congresswoman Pat Psyche, she did wind up losing that election to Senator Daniel Akaka, but forced that action on Kahoalave. We'll talk more about that in a bit, but I did want to move on to our next voice this morning. From the world of hula and, and music, Kavikapua Kalani Frank Hewitt started a hula halau in 1978, following studies with many famous kumu hula, including Emma DeFries and Edith Kanaka'ole. He talks about how he was drawn into the protest movement around Kahoalave. I think at that time, everybody was looking, you know, not many kupuna were supportive of what was going on. Right. You know, we have very similar challenges today as we had back then. Not everybody was supportive. In fact, the, the thing we heard a lot was, you're never going to get the island back. Mm -hmm. Oh, Auntie Emma believed we were going to get the island back. We did a ceremony. And then I went with Auntie Emma, I was her kikihanai. Auntie went with me and I knelt on the ground and I had my, um, 
my uh, Auntie Emma stood behind me, and if you look at it, she has one hand on, I think, on my back, or one hand uh, to the akua, and I did the oli and I chanted, and she asked me to prepare some different kinds of, of things. So we took the ulu to represent the growth of the land. We took an ipu to represent the god Lono, and of course, agriculture. And within the ipu, we had water, the god Kane, who gave life. That was part of Auntie's protocol. And part of it was to plant the ulu, and then with the ulu, to pour the water, to symbolize um, you know, Father Heaven and Mother Earth, and their procreation with the growth and the ulu. And all of it was within the words. Yeah? Mm -hmm. All of it was in the words. So these symbolic things, those are the things. So everything had to do with the words and the power within those words. And then, you know, because of that, we got the island back. So everybody may have their own reason and understanding. My reason and understanding because of the ceremony. That was not just the physical growth of the movement but the spiritual growth of the movement. Mm -hmm. There was a joining of heaven and earth in the planting so that everything would be pono, iluna, ilalo in the movement. And Auntie Emma guided that movement. Another stunning bit of, bit of background there. Uh, Kavika Pua Kalani, Frank Hewitt, Kuma Hula, uh, composer, musician, activist. One last voice this morning, by the way, it belongs to Kaliko Baker, who teaches at the University of Hawaii and also conducts the annual makahiki ceremonies on Kahoalabe. I'd like to leave with saying mahalo to all those who have uh, put effort given to the Kahoalabe movement and um, to George Helm and Kimo Mitchell for the ultimate sacrifice of their, their lives for the movement. And then the long-term commitments from people like yourself, Professor McGregor, and um, Dr. Amina Luli and other longtime Ohana people like Craig Neff and Ropaka Iwohi. And just to just to have the wherewithal to see to commit to a project and see it through. And I'm talking about like a project, like it's a classroom assignment, but anyway, you know, it's such a grand scale endeavor as that is the regreening of Koholabe. So with that, I give my utmost mahalo and aloha to all those who have come before. And hopefully, you know, I'll be around to uh, high five the next generation as I get old. Yeah, that's it. Koliko Baker uh, completing a set of compelling and really inspiring voices this morning from the Center for Oral History on Koholabe. You know, it's just remarkable just to hear the, you know, the cultural uh, thread there. I mean, mm. I uh, was there at Ilani Palace uh, when the Navy signed the papers to turn Kaho'olawe over to the state. And I've only been to Kaho'olawe uh, once, uh, and the road was terrible. <laughs> I don't know, Derek, you know, maybe you can bring us uh, into the present. Uh, you know, how are things on the island now? Yeah, Catherine, that that road was terrible. Uh, they they they, re, they had to redo the road for the uh, clearance project. Um, but over the years and and the rains, um, the, the new road is still terrible. So, 
Um, you know, li- listening to those clips, uh, I- I'm just I'm wondering, you know, what what other backroom, uh, you know, Oval Office deals have been made, you know, once you threaten a, a president's golf course, right? Um, and to think that, you know, um, Pat Psyche running for Senate um, had a lot to do with stopping the bombing of, of Kaholave, right? And that that political action is Alohaida and, and how she did that. And, and yes, it was a political tool for, for her to kind of uh, get ahead in her career, but it's also something that a lot of the uh, constituents uh, wanted was to put an end to the bombing. So that was, I really enjoyed that that clip from um, Pat Psyche. Yeah, it's wonderful. Uh, you know, when you go back and look and you understand what the, you know, the forces that were at play uh, during that time, you know, with the, with the political stakes, right? Trying to get that seat in Congress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's, you know, there's Aloha Aina happening at the state and at the county levels of government, too. And it's, um, it, it's not just, uh, you know, people, but it's also a, a mindset. So, you know, we were lucky enough to have uh, several rounds of lawmakers and uh, come to Kaholawe to experience the island and, and take that back with them to, um, to help craft policy, uh, not just concerning Kaholawe or funding the island, but also in, in how they view um, policies that affect natural resources um, throughout, throughout the state. And um, so, you know, really a, a powerful place to uh, shape the, the vision of, of policies uh, for not just Native Hawaiians, but for all of us that live in Hawaii. Now, the funding that was set aside to help clean up the island, now that money is almost POW. And I know, you know, it's a struggle for uh, the commission, right, for Kirk to move forward uh, and, and get some of the funds uh, for the staff, you know, in the, uh, into the general fund. Uh, there, there's been several pots of money that uh, uh, Kirk has tried to tap, you know, to help with this reforestation project. You know, talk about that. Yeah, it, it's, not, it's not cheap to run an island, right? Um, and in the beginning part, uh, when the Kirk first started, uh, they had this, uh, this trust fund set aside from the, the cleanup monies that the Navy had uh, gotten from uh, Congress. And over the years, that has whittled away. And, and now the, uh, the Kaholawe Island Reserve Commission uh, largely depends on funding um, from the state legislature. And, and every year it's a, um, you know, it's kind of up in the air. Uh, you know, they put in their request and, you know, they get funded half of it, right? Um, or something like that. But, you know, th- there's such a compelling story of environmental protection, culture protection, uh, you know, forest restoration, water sh- watershed restoration, that the Kirk's also been able to uh, get grants from other state agencies as well as federal agencies to help with that, that restoration effort. And I know uh, with COVID, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty about our state budget and funding going forward. Uh, you know, I was checking with the uh, executive director there at Kirk, and, you know, he says, yeah, we're, it's just a wait-and-see thing because uh, we're not sure, uh, you know, uh, what's going to happen in 2021. Uh, you know, we do thank you so much, Derek Marr, for joining us today to help remember this important day in Hawaii history. Uh, we thank the University of Hawaii's Oral uh, History Project at the center. Uh, but, you know, uh, we're going to have to send you back to Pledge Central 
Uh, but we're going to leave you with uh, Hawaiian Soul, a song written and performed by John Osorio and Randy Borden in honor of George Helm and Kimo Mitchell. Hawaiian Soul, we sing your melodies and say.